came from all over the world, and they were debating those things that made Christianity, the Christian faith, unique from all other world religions. And uh, they were having, uh, they were eliminating one possibility at a time. Some thought it was the incarnation, it was Jesus, it was God becoming a, a man, a human being, but there are other religions that, that claim that, so in that sense, that wasn't unique. Uh, Others thought the resurrection, but again, uh, other religions, and uh, there's been other cases, even in Jesus' time, now he was the one who raised them from the dead, but where, where people came back to life, and so maybe that wasn't quite so unique, and, and, and their discussions were, were getting heated. I mean, the, the volume of their debating was getting louder and louder, and C.S. Lewis, uh, one of my favorite theologians and authors, he he strolled into the room as he heard the arguing from down the hall, and he says, what's all the rumpus about? I mean, that sounds like something a Brit would say, right? His colleagues told him of their discussion as to what made Christianity unique from the other world religions, and Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. We've been talking a lot about grace lately, as we should. Uh, unmerited favor of God. Grace. Grace is what sets the Christian faith apart from every other world religion. Now, Philip Yancey put it this way. He said, the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, and Muslims' code of law, each of these offers a way for man to earn approval from God. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional, and that's exactly what it is, not because we just made it up to be that way, because that's what Jesus said. Jesus lived the perfect life. He did nothing wrong. He was illegally and unlawfully tried, convicted, and crucified. He took on the sin of the world. He took on the pain of that sin. And he conquered it. Because of God's grace, there is hope, both for today and the rest of eternity. It's a living hope. It's not hope in the sense that, uh, like, wishful thinking, and, and I, even I catch myself using that phrase, and I'm like, well, what else, what other word would I use? You know, like, I hope you have a safe trip. You know, sometimes that's wishful thinking, um, but, but it is sort of a, you know, it's like, you know, roll the dice, you know, like driving from here to Moorcroft at night in the, in the middle, in the dark. You know, you're kind of rolling the dice, right? Um, the deer are just... For whatever reason, I think the grass is more tender in the ditch than it is out in the pasture, right? So, so that's where they all, or, or maybe, maybe mom's like, hey, let's go out to eat tonight. Yeah, let's do that. Let's eat by a highway. That's kind of like, kind of like sitting in the drive-thru of the old Hardee's, which is where the O'Reilly's is right now. If you ever experienced that when a train went by, That, that adds a whole other level of risk of eating out, let me tell you. Uh, anyway, Jesus conquered death. We have hope because of Jesus Christ. I, I want to first, 
this morning take a look at the writer of 1 Peter. Who wrote the book of 1 Peter? Peter wrote the book of 1 Peter. Um, Peter was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And of all the disciples, I think, I think Peter probably understood the grace of God the most. Now, I've never, I have never dove into the book of 1 Peter. Um, I've never really wrestled with the entire book, and I'm looking forward to the series. Uh, I mean, it seems like Peter was the, disciples that w- the disciple that was always sticking his foot in his mouth, right? He would speak before he thought. He would leap. He would step out of the boat before he even really considered the, the actions of what was about to happen. He was always leaping before thinking, speaking before thinking, and probably his, his most well-known favor, or favor, failure, was his denial of Jesus three times the night that Jesus was tried. Peter denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times, and the third time he threw a curse in there just to be extra um, sure that they got the point that he didn't, didn't know Jesus. Peter, but, but Peter beforehand had said, no way, Jesus, I, I will not ever deny you. Mark 14, 29 through 31, we see this interaction with Jesus. Even if all fall away, I will not, Peter said. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you, and all the others said the same. Peter had the best of intentions. He was in that moment sold out and fully committed to his Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he still failed. How many times has that occurred to us? On a Sunday morning, sitting in here in church with all of our friends, we're lifting the name of Jesus high, and then the pressure comes, and when we're, we're with a bunch of our other friends, and they're telling jokes, and we get pulled into that, and we tell an off-color joke, or we share something on Facebook that later we wish we had taken back, and what have we done? Now, I've never caught this before, this study, but in Luke chapter 22, verse 61, it says this. This is what happened when Peter denied Jesus, the rooster crows, and it says the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Now, imagine that moment. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Have you ever gotten one of those looks? Right? Some of you children that are in this room, maybe your parents already did that this morning. You know, you were making a little too much noise or whatever, and they looked down the row at you and said, with their eyes, right? You know, if looks could kill, we've said that before. And, and you, you kind of you think that. I mean, seriously, you just did that? That's kind of what comes to our mind. That, that's, what would, that's what comes to my mind. Or how could you have done that to me? How many of you have had someone say that to you? Or how many times have you said that or thought that? of someone else. If you've ever given anyone else that look, I know I have, and I've been on the receiving end of it too. It's devastating. It hurts. 
to have somebody that you love and that you trust look at you, don't even have to say anything, and you can just see the disappointment on their face. But here's the interesting thing. None of the natural human responses that we would attribute to Jesus in that moment jive with the look that Jesus actually gave Peter. And here's why I say this. The Greek word for looked in this context carries the idea of interest, love, and concern. You see, this wasn't a look of how dare you. This was a look of, oh, my heart breaks for you, Peter. My heart breaks for you. He looked at him with grace in his eyes. It's as if Jesus was saying, Peter, I love you and I'm concerned about you because I know how broken and hurt you are going to be later in the day, later in the week, when you think about how you have rejected me. Peter denied his Lord, but later, what happens? In the moment, in the moment of denial, in the moment of betrayal, and Peter is more concerned about his safety than he is standing up for the Savior, who he said probably not two days before, I will, I will, if I have to die with you, I will never turn and walk away. If we look in John chapter 21, this is after Jesus has died and we'll see that it's even after he has been raised again, Peter had returned to fishing. I mean, his whole life and the reason that he's been living for the last three years just sort of blew up and his Savior turned out to, his Messiah turned out to be, I guess, not who he thought he was or he wasn't sure what to do. So what do we do when we get lost and we don't know what to do? We sort of go back to what, what we're comfortable with, what we knew before. And so Peter goes back to fishing. I mean, he had to do something. And in John 21, starting in verse 3, Peter says, I'm going out to fish. Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? They yelled back, no, no. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Wait a minute. Like deja vu, right? Have we been here before? I wonder if the disciples caught it yet. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Here's your sign, right? Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's interesting that that's how John, who wrote the book of John, describes himself in in the book of John. (laughs) Um, I'm the one that the Lord loved. He loved them all. But then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off. It must have been hot that night. And he jumped into the water. After they had finished eating, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Yes, Lord, I love you. Jesus asked him again, Peter, do you love me? And again, Peter said, yes, Lord. And you know that I love you. And Jesus said in verse 16, this is after the second time, take care of my sheep. And then the third time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? How many times did Jesus say, do you love me? And at the end, in that moment, I'm sure there was this, maybe this big sigh of relief like this load had been lifted off of Peter's shoulders where he had been face to face with his Savior and, and he knows in this moment that Jesus trusts him, that, that Jesus is not holding that against him, that he has forgiven him. And we know that from, uh, from the time that uh, Jesus rose from the dead on, that, that Peter, God formed and molded Peter from a weak, flimsy puddle of wet clay that jumped out and, and, and stuck his foot in his mouth all the time into a solid rock. I mean, Jesus said it's upon this rock. It's, it's you, Peter. You're one of the ones that I'm going to build my church on. And early on, you think, really, Peter? How on earth is that even possible? Well, that's God. And when we think, well, how could God use me? Or, or what could God do? Or he couldn't forgive me. Or he couldn't heal me. Or, or he couldn't do anything good for me in the life and, and the way that I've just left my life in a shambles. But you know what? Jesus is not looking at you in a condemning way, just like he was looking at Peter. It wasn't a how dare you. It's I hurt for you. I love you. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? I mean, Peter, Peter, Peter was so solid that he did indeed go to his death because of what he believed, because of his Messiah. He failed at it the first time, but not the last time. We'll see that here in a little bit. So much more could be said about Peter. I was going to do the introduction and all of this, and then I was going to do the first passage, and as I was, there was just no way. I mean, I told Mr. Goosewell, we'd have been here an hour and a half this morning, and he said, I still would have been here. I said, you would have been here, but would you have come back next week? No. I... So the second thing that I want to point out this morning or look at is the audience. Who was Peter writing to? Peter calls them in verse 1 strangers, strangers and aliens. In chapter 2, he calls them strangers and pilgrims. Like, like Abraham, these people that, that Peter is writing to, um, they had their eyes on, of faith on the future city of God. Um, they were in the world, but not of the world. And they were scattered, scattered all, all across it. The Greek word translated scattered, scattered here in this passage is, is diaspora, which was the technical term for the Jews who lived outside of Palestine. It, it's used in, in John chapter 7, verse 35. It's used in James chapter 1, verse 1. And even though Paul was assigned specifically to mention to, to minister to the Gentiles, and it, Peter, it seems, was specifically assigned to minister to the Jews. The letter that Peter wrote was not to the Jews only, because there are other statements in the letter that we'll see as we go through this series that suggest that Peter knew some of his readers were converted out of Gentile paganism. Peter's audience is all believers, which includes us. 
And we will find, this is just how timeless the word of God is, we will find as we study through the book of Peter where we're able to put exact situations that we are either in right now or could be next week in our current place where our nation is that is exactly the same as who the original uh, people were that Peter was writing to. Um, These Christians were scattered in five different parts of the Roman Empire, all of them in northern Asia Minor, which is today, which is modern-day Turkey today. And, And as they were living their lives and moving all over, they were going through times of suffering and persecution. At least 15 times in this letter, Peter uses eight different Greek words to mention their trials. Life's pretty rough or it's going to get pretty rough for them. Some suffered because they were living godly lives and doing what was good and right and people didn't like that. Because either it made them look bad or, or, or it made the person that was trying to do right look like somebody that was self-righteous and they were, they were being persecuted for that. Some suffered because they were living, um, some, some suffering was simply because they believed in the name of Jesus. Simply because they believed in the name of Jesus. 20 years ago, I would have said that could never happen in this nation. It, it, it seems like that is happening today. They were railed on by unsaved people. And Peter also, I think, had an inside sort of heads up that there were fiery trials coming for, for us. Um, Paul had defended the Christian faith before the official court in Rome and succeeded the first time. He had been released, but he was soon arrested again, and his second defense failed, and Paul was killed. This type of persecution happens in every generation, doesn't it? Not always in every nation, but in every generation. I saw a post last week come up. uh, October 6th was the anniversary, if you will, that um, William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English, was burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church because he translated it into English. That's pretty rough. And, and, and now, as I was kind of researching that little uh, situation, um, he, he was... He was, he was burned at the stake because they saw it as a move that was a direct challenge to the church and the laws of England, uh, which were set in place to maintain the church's position. Um, I read that Tyndale's work was actually plagiarized later uh, for later English translations. In fact, one estimate even suggests that the New Testament of the King James Version is 83% Tyndale's words and that the Old Testament was 76%. You see, Peter wanted to prepare the believers for what was coming. Peter's saying, look, because you believe what you believe, and it's the truth, mind you, life's going to be rough. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be testing. And similar to the persecution of the early church, many in our world today are experiencing similar persecution. We, we have missionaries who can't go back to, to where they were originally ministering to in, uh, in the Cameroon because there's this tribal war between um, those who are opposing the government and, and they're also 
Muslim or whatever sect it is there, and, and they're forcing people at gunpoint to denounce their Christian faith if they believe in Jesus. Or be killed. Or lose all your property. I mean, we could face it all the same. And the question is, are we ready for that? Are we ready to look at someone and say, yeah, throw me in jail. I'm not backing down for my faith. We can face that with 100% complete hope, not wishful thinking, but assurance in our relationship with Jesus Christ every day of our lives. I came across this quote this week, and it really struck me. Uh, I want you to think about it as well. Christ's resurrection spells hope for us, not just because he lives, but because by God's mercy we live. (laughs) What amazing grace and forgiveness we have all who are in Christ Jesus have experienced. What life we have been given. Even though we like to focus on the dark things and the negative things, who would have thought that you could have a hard freeze like we had weeks and weeks ago and all of the trees on all of, or all of the leaves on all of the trees didn't just turn black and die? Seriously, have you, have you thought about that? Have you given a look at the trees and the colors that we have right here in our own neighborhood right now? Or, or, or are all of the other things in 2020 overshadowing even the good things, the, the gifts that we're receiving in the year 2020? I every, asked my wife, every time I walked into the kitchen last night and I looked at our, uh, our tree in our backyard, I said, wow, the colors on that tree, I'm not sure I have ever seen it look that beautiful. Who would have thought you could say something like that in 2020? Right? What are we focusing on? Peter wanted to prepare the believers for what was coming, yes. But he also wanted to communicate to them how, uh, what sort of amazing grace we have. And now let, I, I just want to look at the message. Three truths that are evident throughout Peter's letter. And, um, and we're going to see these over and over and over and over again as we go through Peter's letter. So these are three main summary statements. The first one is this. The earth is not our home. The earth is not our home. If you ever gone on one of those vacations, it was a great vacation. Maybe it was a week, maybe it was two weeks, maybe you spent a week on, on the beach and it was relaxing and, you know, you went to a spa and all of that, or maybe you went to the Grand Canyon and, and then you drove home. What, what sort of words do you utter when you come around that final corner? Or you, we, we sort of, I, I sort of picture this if I'm coming from the south, when we come over the hill and we, we, we see Torrington there. Or, or we come over Vaughn Hill, come in this direction towards Lingle, if you live in Lingle. At the end of a vacation, what, what often words come to your mind or do you say out loud? It's good to be home. We're finally home. Not that it wasn't enjoyable where we were, because we liked that. It was great. But, oh, the comfort of being in our own bed and being at home, that's what heaven is going to be like. That's our home. This is not our home. The earth is not my home. We will hear Peter remind us over and over throughout his letter that we are strangers in the world. We are foreigners here. 
as Christians, as believers. Uh, in 2.11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. It can be a daily battle. And we need to remember that all that we see and all that we do and all that we experience here is not all there is. Not that we shouldn't enjoy it, okay? Not that, well, it's only going to be great. Like, again, oh, I can't wait till 2020 is over. Then it'll be all good because it'll be 2021, right? I mean, back when I, I remember, I did when I was talking about the message for 2020, I had great hopes for the year 2020. It seems like they've been dashed on the rocks, but not so fast. God is doing good things in 2020. I see it in people's hearts. I see it in people's lives. It is a daily battle, yes. When we trust in Christ and we receive the forgiveness that comes from God's amazing grace and the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can be assured that we will spend eternity in heaven, that we will have hope, that we will have joy, but we don't have to wait till then. That starts right now. But if we find ourselves in the middle of something and we think, I cannot go on, Peter reminds us, this is only for a short while. Heaven is coming. I can endure this. I can endure this. It's level up time. On to the next level. Next level of maturity, next level of trust, next level of faith. You can do this. We can do this. That's what Peter is saying. I mean, as amazing as this planet that Jesus created is, can you imagine heaven? As beautiful as those trees are out there right now, and trust me, the, you better look fast because my yard, the, trees are, the leaves are falling fast. Keep praying for one of those west north or southwest winds, you know, to blow the leaves out into the street and down to the neighbors. Um, but when we're experiencing difficult times in our lives, we need to remember. Um, when people are calling us strange, I mean... Sometimes that happens too, right? Uh, when we believe what we believe, they think we act strange. Well, honestly, we are all strange. We're all weird. Strangers. Again, we must remember that this earth is not our home. The second truth is this. God uses adversity in this life to strengthen our faith. Why should athletes get to throw the word adversity around all the time, right? We face such adversity on the court. Oh, please, that's not real adversity. I mean, I get it. Maybe in the moment it's a battle and it's a struggle. And, and you know, watching high school boys play out on a football field. And, and it's like, man, you got it. When you face that adversity, you got to step up. And, you know, that other team punches you in the mouth. You need to, not literally, but you need to punch them in the mouth back. Because if you don't, you're just gonna you're gonna get back on your heels and you're gonna throw up your hands and they're just gonna run all over you. Trouble is inevitable. It's gonna happen. I don't care how good or perfect or great decisions any of us make in life, there's gonna be trouble. Grief in all kinds of trials. It doesn't matter. Even in those, there's still hope. 
Not wishful thinking, not I sure hope this goes away soon, but hope knowing that I have salvation in Christ and, and I have strength and, and healing. And there is a positive to all of this trouble. God never wastes hurt. You know, when a parent disciplines a child, it should not be just for pain's sake. It's not just to hurt them, just to hurt them. It's for correction. There's, there's a reason. There's a point behind it. God is, is the same way. He, he never wastes a hurt. He uses everything that happens to us in a supernatural way to strengthen our, our faith, which Peter says is, is, in fact, more important than the purest gold. In uh, Peter 1, 6 and 7, he says, In all this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The writer of Hebrews emphasizes the value of our faith in Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, he says, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You see, God tests us. He guides us into places and situations to test our faith. We're told in Scripture, we see it in the Old Testament, God says, I'm testing these people. The reason teachers give tests isn't to punish their students, although I think I had some teachers that that was the whole point of the test. It's to see if you pass. It's to see if you've learned what I seek to teach you. And when you do, you move on to the next chapter and the next level. Consider Abraham. Abraham, sacrifice your son. What was that? It was a test. God didn't really want him. God wasn't. Now, I don't know if I would have thought this way. I would have thought, well, okay, this is contrary to kind of how I think of the character of God. But he said, do it. So, And that's exactly what Abraham did. And what did God do? Hallelujah. Abraham is obedient. He provided another way out. Job, for instance, so many others in Scripture and in our lives every day. Everything that happens to us in this life first goes through the hands of God. He is not the author of evil, but he obviously allows it to occur. And we just trust. He will use it. He uses our suffering to supernaturally shape and mold us into the men and women that he wants us to be, into who he created us to be. Men and women who bring him glory. Peter's first audience were believers who were experiencing severe persecution under the reign of the Roman Empire, Nero. And it just got worse and worse and worse. Uh, Nero was a psychotic leader. He used Christians as scapegoats after Rome burned down in, in AD 64. He blamed it on them. Peter was probably in Rome when that happened. Nero put believers through horrendous acts of evil. He, he put women and children into the Colosseum for sport to be torn apart by lions. He impaled believers on stakes and burned them as human torches to light up his decadent evening parties. And in fact, according to tradition, we're not told this in scripture, Peter himself 
just after he wrote his second letter, was crucified upside down. Why? Because he refused to deny the name of Jesus Christ. Proving that his faith was real, that he truly was a child of God, and that no trial would overcome his faith. Trials and testing are a part of our journey with God, and quite honestly, who can mind the journey when the road leads home, right? Again, this is not our home. And the journey that we're in is leading us there. Finally, the third overall truth that Peter tackles in his letter is that the end of all things is near. Who hasn't thought that in the year 2020? Right? I mean, I've talked to a lot of people here lately that truly believe that we are in the last days, and we honestly could be. I mean, I was taking students to, to a conference in Denver. Dawson McAllister, some of you probably recall that. One year, he talked about and was preparing students for the end. I mean, we were talking about the rapture and, and end times theology at a student conference. And Dawson McAllister truly believed that his generation would be the last. It, it still could be, but there are several other generations here now. And, and the truth is, we, we don't know. But what I do know is life is getting more difficult as we live it in the days that we're living in now. I think every generation at times thinks that their generation is the last. Um, the people Peter is writing to, for one. Um, Jesus says to the disciples on, on a couple occasions, the end is near. And, and of course, in our minds, we think that was 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago. That doesn't seem very near to me. Well, God's description of near and ours is our, a little bit different. I wonder what the predominant feeling of the Jews during the Holocaust was. Could it get any worse than this? This has to be the end. Jesus has got to be returning. And maybe it was their hope in that that helped many of them survive in the concentration camps. The truth of the matter is every generation is in their last days. Right? I mean, what's, what's the longest you could possibly live? Think about it. If you're in this room and you could live to 100, just to make the math simple, especially if you're 50, which I'm not. Um, how many years do you have left? And how does that compare to, to history? Just a little bit of time. Any one of us could walk out of this room and have a heart attack and die today. All of us are in our last days. The end is actually near, come to find out for each one of us. Whether it's near for the entire planet or not, I, I don't know. I can't answer that question. But, but when persecution comes, we need to be ready. Peter admonishes us to live each day being intentional about our witness to unbelievers, to remain obedient to the word of God and be a good witness, and to love one another. We're all going to live on for eternity. Not in this world, 
but in heaven. And in light of God's amazing grace, those who are in Christ Jesus. And in light of God's amazing grace, we can, even in the year 2020, praise and worship him every day because of the hope that we have. The things that we do now, honestly, will echo on throughout time, bringing glory to God and storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven, which is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. You see, we get really comfortable with what we have here. And we forget that this is not our home. But, Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. That gives us hope to live our lives every day. It's in Christ we have that hope. It's in worshiping him that those treasures are stored up. It's in having the attitude of Christ and serving others that those treasures are stored up. God works through us in, even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of violence that's occurring in our nation, even in the midst of all the political dividedness. In light of God's amazing grace, we can worship him every day every day. And this week, as we, maybe you've already read through the book of 1 Peter, or I challenge you to read through the book of 1 Peter and just kind of get a feel for what, what those who read it. And, and this was a circular, circular letter. Again, it wasn't to the church in Ephesus or the Corinthians. It was a letter that was to be passed out to all of those churches in Asia Minor and to us. And as again, we look at this and we see how current what Peter is going to challenge us with and encourage us with is for our day, even today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Father, I pray that you would help us to remember these truths that we've heard here today. Father, I pray that it wouldn't be a case of the the seed of the word has been spread on the soil of our hearts and our minds and we're going to go out and and life's going to get tough and and the weeds are going to come and all those worries are going to come and they're going to take the word away that we've heard this morning. I pray that that wouldn't be the case. I pray that our our hearts, our souls, our minds, our, our fertile, deep soil and that as you teach us through and encourage us and challenge us through the book of 1 Peter, that our roots would continue to grow deep and when the trials come, when the persecution comes, when the hardships come, when death comes or, or broken relations, relationships come or, or financial trouble comes, that, that, those, that, that the hope of your word even in the midst of those troubled times, that our tree will bear fruit for you and for your glory. Thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen.